You may have noticed that we forgot to announce the uh, children going out. But I'm grateful that the children didn't forget that they were going out, and uh, so they, they did. Don't get in the way of an enthusiastic child on his way to play um, and learn more about God. We've got a crash room available at the back if you've got smaller children and they want to go out there. Thank you, Rob. We've got a week of prayer coming up that Rob mentioned, and it just so happens that the message I'm bringing, that at the end of our, we've been looking at Luke, uh, from Luke's Gospel for quite a while now, just going through different passages. It's the last one of those before we start a new series uh, from next week. And it just so happens to be Jesus teaching on prayer. And uh, I think there's some really wonderful principles in this passage that can help us uh, when we come to pray. Now, if I was to ask you what percentage of people you think pray or how many people pray, I'd be intrigued to know what your answer is. And I've got a few statistics, not many, but I, with Bruce Forsyth, just dying. I was tempted to do it as play your cards right, sort of have them uh, and do it higher or lower for some of the numbers I've got. And I thought, no, that might go wrong. So um, what I've just got is um, a question really about how many people you think are prayerful people. Um, in 20 th- my, my stats come from a survey of 2,000 plus people uh, t- undertaken in 2013, uh, commissioned by the Church of England and, and undertaken by ICM, the polling agency. So If I asked you how many people out of seven, what proportion out of seven prayed? One out of seven, two out of seven, three out of seven, four out of seven, five out of seven, six out of seven, seven out of seven. So we'll start with one out of, or none out of seven, you could have that, but if you pray then that's not going to be the answer. So one out of seven, how many of you think that across the nation one out of seven people pray? Okay, two out of seven, three out of seven, four out of seven. Five out of seven, six out of seven, and seven out of seven. Okay, the correct answer for this poll, other surveys are available, is of 2,000 people taken, was six out of seven people pray. Six out of seven people pray. One out of seven said they would never pray at all. That's the number of people. And uh, one out of seven said they would never pray. Now, interestingly, of the, I'm not going to do this by a show of hands. Um, the stats were this. For fi- people in their 50s and 60s, later 50s and 60s, it was 17% of them said they would never pray. Of the 18 to 24s, 9% said they would never pray. Interesting stat, isn't it? So our younger people are more inclined to pray than those who are slightly more mature in years. And that's interesting. I was encouraged by that because often we hear that young people have lost touch with spiritual things and they're doing their own thing. But actually there's a hunger in Uh, people to cry out to God. And what we're seeing there, this is largely a group of people, I think, 18 to 24-year-olds, who haven't grown up necessarily with uh, an inherited spirituality, haven't grown up through school necessarily, unless they've had some really good schools, schooling them in in the ways of God or teaching them how to pray. But there's something within us that cries out to God in times of need. There's something within people that cries out when we don't know what to do, when we've run out of answers ourselves. And I found that really, really interesting. And we're going to look at a passage in Luke's Gospel, Luke 11. And uh, do turn to it if you want to. The words will be up on the screen. I think I've got all of them. And uh, it's just going to read the first four verses to start with. Reading from the NIV version. It says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, 
For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. That's it for the moment. That's the end of the prayer in Luke's gospel. Now, the setting of this passage is is interesting. It says in verse 1, as you can see, I'll just see if I've got another slide. No, there we go, go back to that one. Uh, At the top, it says Jesus was praying in a certain place. We don't know where that place was, but he was praying. And when he's finished, one of his disciples approaches him. Now, Now, the Bible in this story doesn't fill in all the details. It doesn't tell us what the disciples were doing while Jesus was praying. It's possible they were waiting possible they were praying too. We don't know how long Jesus prayed for. Maybe he prayed for a long time and the disciples started praying and stopped. And, but certainly they've been watching. They've been watching and waiting. They don't want to disturb him. They don't want to interrupt. But they've been waiting for him to finish, to, for one of them to go and say, would you teach us how to pray? It's quite interesting as well, the, the way it's the question's framed. It says, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, this is John the Baptist, uh, another preacher, before Jesus, a forerunner of Jesus, taught his disciples. I found that quite interesting because obviously the disciples of Jesus are aware that John's disciples have a particular way of praying and they don't. And they're feeling somehow that they're missing out. That, that somehow there's a, a formula for prayer being given to them that they haven't got and, and they want to learn. Now we've said that prayer is instinctive. Six out of seven people in our nation pray from time to time. But successful prayer can feel elusive. And I wonder if that's where the disciples fell, where they're looking at their own life in prayer and they're looking at Jesus and comparing the two and say, well, there's a bit of a gulf between how we pray and how Jesus prays. Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Would you help us? And I want to talk into this this thing of where we all do this thing called prayer, but how do we do this better? How do we engage with God better? How do we connect with him? How do we get to the end of praying And know that actually God's in it. And we're with God. And we've done what we needed to do. How do we connect with God in a meaningful way as we pray? That's what I'd love to look at today. Jesus teaches through this passage about how to pray. He gives them a set prayer, a pattern of prayer. And then he's going to go on and give a couple more stories. And I'm really, my theme today is up in the top right, prayer, confidence, and the goodness of God. Prayer, confidence, and the goodness of God. Because I think that's the area that Jesus covers. And Jesus works through some challenges to prayer. Firstly, some of you may have faced this when you go to pray, that God may not answer us. What happens if God doesn't answer? Secondly, we might not have come to God in the right way or prayed in the right way. What do I do if I, 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 maybe I haven't prayed right? I didn't seem to get what I wanted, so maybe I didn't pray right or come to God in the right way. Maybe, maybe I've done something wrong. And thirdly, that God might not be able to or might not be willing to help. Those three things I think Jesus is tackling this. One, that God might not answer. Two, that we might not have come in the right way. Three, that God might not be willing or able to help. And all of those are dealt with here. Now, firstly, this prayer. This, this prayer or forms of it, versions of it, some of us will have learned from being young. Um, it, it's a familiar wording, at least in part. It's quite short, isn't it? We had a prayer meeting before the service, and, and this is quite a short prayer. I have heard shorter prayers. I was in a prayer meeting uh, many years ago in a different church, and uh, people were getting really animated and passionate, as people can do in prayer meetings. And they were, they were sort of 
crying out to God and, and, and there was people sort of kneeling and people pacing around and people praying in tongues in, uh, uh, in spiritual language and all sorts of things. And, and then one man, it just well fell silent for a moment, and one man spoke up and he said, thank you, Lord, for mushrooms. And that was the end of his prayer. And I sat there. I think I was sitting rather than kneeling. I sat there and tried to hold it together, as you do. When you're a pastor and you're in a prayer meeting, it's important to vaguely hold it together. But I, I was just tickled by this. And uh, it, was, it was hilarious, this moment. Because he was, whatever he was doing, he was thanking God for mushrooms. Wait, I don't know if they were magic ones or ordinary ones, but he was thanking God for them. <laughs> but that was a short prayer. And you can pray short prayers. You don't need to pray fancy prayers. But Jesus is teaching a prayer that's not complicated, but it's rich. And I want to just quickly look at this. I've got some thoughts on it, and I'll, I'll keep them within the time. You, you could go on about this one prayer for a long time, but I don't want to do that. But it starts abruptly. Now, the prayer I learned starts, Our Father. This just starts, Father. It's an abrupt start. But it's abrupt because it's personal. When I was at home growing up, I wouldn't address my dad as my dad. I would just say, Dad, or my mum as my mother, I would like to converse with you. <laughs> Verily, may we have a com You know, you wouldn't do that. You, you, you just say, Mum, where's the dad? Can I? And so this prayer that Jesus teaches us starts out abruptly, but that abruptness is actually rather more personal. And it's in the same in the Greek. It says, just says, Father. It's a term of intimacy. It's a term that's used that, that speaks of, of a familiar relationship with God. It's a word that would be used from, from a child to a parent. A father. But, it, but it's also a term that speaks of some weight and gravitas. God the Father who is our Father, has authority. And that word Father reflects that authority that God has. So it's both intimate and reflecting authority at the same time. And Jesus goes on and says, pray then, hallowed be your name. In Jewish culture, your name was connected with your person and who you were. And so to honor someone's name was very significant indeed. And Jesus is again connecting, having made that personal, abrupt beginning. He then makes this connection with honoring the name and the honor that's due to our Father. So we have both intimacy and reverence in that first phrase. And we can approach God with intimacy and also in worship and reverence. It really helps to know who you're praying to when you pray. Now, now that sounds obvious, I know, but I, I think for years I've been discovering more as a Christian about who God is. Have you? Have you been discovering more as you've, as you've grown in faith? And, and actually, the, as the years go by, your understanding of God is richer? Do, do you find that experience, or is it just me? I think I'm, there's a couple of you. Okay, so for the two of us that get this, okay, that, then, then we're growing. For the rest of you that had the implant when you became a Christian and you understood God fully, please teach me, because I would love to know. Um, I've found... And it might just be a few of us, but I've found that actually as I come to God, my understanding of simple words is changing over the years. So I used to pray, Father, and it meant something. But now as I come before God and I use the word Father, the, the, the semantic range, the meaning range of that word is much richer. 
And, and sometimes I can say less by I can say more by saying less these days when I'm in God's presence because you just say a couple of words and and it means so much. Because I've seen God deliver on his promise over the years. I've seen God not only be a father conceptually, but be a father in my life. And act as father and be that. And so when I say that word, it, it has a resonance that it didn't have years ago. We're growing in our understanding and we're getting richer and learning more. When we say the next phrase, your kingdom come, we're doing something very significant. We've started with intimacy and acknowledgement of who God is. We've, we've carried on actually to worship. We've been singing in worship today, but you can pray in worship. And to say, hallowed be your name is a form of worship. Uh, so to go on to your kingdom come, we're really just saying that when we're praying, what we're doing is exchanging our will for God's. We go to pray. We often have an agenda. There's often some reasons why we've gone to pray. And I suspect several of those six out of seven people that pray are praying quite short prayers, quite immediate prayers in a moment of desperate need. They're going to God in a time of great need and many of us do that. We go to God when, when we've run out of ideas but to say your kingdom come is recognizing that in this, in this thing called prayer we're saying God here's my will but actually I want yours to come. That's the reason I'm praying today. I'm exchanging my will for yours before I ask for anything else. Because prayer is about God's will being done, not mine. And that's a really good thing for us. Prayer is about God's will being done, not mine. And that's a really good thing for me when I come to pray. Because there's nothing better than God's kingdom. This week, some of us have been at a funeral and then at a Thanksgiving service. We were celebrating the life of one of our dear members of this church been here for many years and Brian who was leading the service yesterday spoke about heaven and he spoke warmly of heaven and the hope that we have in heaven and heaven represents for us God's kingdom it's where God we talk about heaven where God reigns and rules and his will is done where there's no delay or no hindrance there's no sin or shame or sickness or death we talk about being in the presence of God where when God wants something done it's done without delay. And we talk about heaven at the same time as a place of great hope and fulfillment of all our hopes now. So when we're praying, Lord, let your kingdom come, we're praying like heaven. We're praying that life would be like it is there, that God's kingdom would come. And, and so to exchange my will for God's is actually to say, Lord, I've got some ideas, but I reckon you're better at this than I am. Because you're building heaven, you're planning heaven, you're working on the place will be actually a renewed earth. But you're, you're working on your plan for the future. And I want to exchange my little bit of my good ideas for what I want for my life, my family, my work, my, my neighbors, my community, the things that are important to me. And, and Lord, I'm just going to pray now over all of that, your kingdom come because you're better at this than I am. You can see more than I can. Your awareness is bigger than mine. And I want to, these things are really important to me, but I submit them under your will. And I say, Lord, your kingdom come. And Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he's saying the most important thing to do is to know who you're praying to, worship God, and pray that his kingdom would come above all else. He then goes on to pray, tell us to pray about our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. It's okay to ask God for stuff. Sometimes we can 
You can grow up with a principle that actually we need to be praying for other people. We need to be praying to God for who he is and worshiping him. And actually it's a bit rude to ask God for things for ourselves. And, and Jesus kind of smashes that concept. He says, no, you can pray. Give us each day our daily bread. And the, and the language that's used here actually points to tomorrow. It's not just the bread that you need for today. It's the bread that you need for tomorrow. And it links with this sense of manna in the wilderness that the Israelites had. And there's this sense of we're trusting you, Lord, just as we've come and we prayed your kingdom come. We're trusting God with tomorrow. We're trusting him as we pray that he knows what I'm going to need tomorrow just as he does for today. And I'm submitting to him and I'm looking to him constantly. Then, he, then we pray for God to forgive us our sins. That same survey of 2,000 plus people asked the question about how many people prayed for God to forgive their sins, and less than 10% did. So people are coming to God to pray for all sorts of stuff, but only 10% are actually saying, Lord, there's a gap. There's a gap between how I'm living my life and your kingdom. There's a gap between what I'm valuing and what I'm doing and how what heaven looks like and how you will reign and rule there. And Lord, I don't want to live with that gap. I don't want to live with sin. I don't want to live with distance from me to you. What I found really helpful is just to pause when I'm praying and reflect back on the previous day. Or if it's at the end of the day, to reflect back on the day and let God direct your thoughts and your memories and point you to times where maybe he wasn't involved in the way that he should have been. And in that way, we can let the Holy Spirit speak to us and direct us and guide us so that we can get things right with God. This is releasing and, and wonderfully uh, um, cleansing as we ask God to forgive us our sins. It's in, we, this is a daily prayer, or a daily pattern of prayer. Give us our daily bread and, and also to forgive us our sins. There's an expectation that there's stuff that's cropping up that, that we're choosing to do that doesn't fit with God's best. And so each day we can come before God and let God cleanse us again. But there's a connection, and you'll have noticed this because you'll have read on ahead of me, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now this is quite challenging because there's an expectation that God will forgive, but that's connected with us forgiving others. I think that when we're choosing to hold on to other people's sin, we're not necessarily fully able to trust God with it. I think there's a better way is to give it over to God and say, I forgive the person and this situation is over to you, Lord. When we say, I forgive you, what we're, what we're, actually, we're not saying it never happened. When we say, I forgive you to somebody, or we pray that God would help us forgive someone, or we choose to forgive them even if we aren't able to speak to them again, when we choose to make a private decision to forgive somebody, we're not saying the things that were done against us never happened. We're not saying they were okay. We're saying, I don't want any longer to act as God in this situation. I'm going to go to God and expect him to forgive me because I have sinned. And at the same time, where people have sinned against me, I'm not going to be the judge. I'm going to let God be the judge. I'm going to let God in his perfect kingdom look after this and decide what happens. I want to be free of this. That's on a very personal level. But actually, there's another aspect to this where we're trusting God with all the pain, all the hurt, everything else that we've gone through, And we're saying, God, I'm trusting you with the outcome. 
When we start a new life in Jesus, it's a completely new life. We're forgiven of our sin. We start again. We're washed clean. We've got a brand new start. And to think that somehow I can accept all of that and say, God, thank you for what you've done for me, but you're not touching this bit of my life ever. I'm going to close this off, shut it down. It's, it's, you're never coming there. But thank you for all this free stuff. That, that doesn't quite work. Because Jesus is actually telling us to, to follow him and to give everything in following him. To come with the whole of our lives and the mess and the pain that other people have caused us to and bring it to him and say, God, here I am. Now, I'm aware this takes some time and some of us are processing stuff that happened years and years ago that's really painful. But I'm telling you the destination. I'm not telling you where you're at at the moment. But, but there's a destination that Jesus is getting us to with this prayer which is showing us that there's a better way to live where God has all our stuff. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the painful stuff, the things other people did, and we bring it all to him, and we say, God, let your kingdom come over all of this. No more hidden areas. No more segmented sections that I'm dealing with privately, thank you very much, and and I'm not going to trust to you. But actually, God, this is scary, and it feels reckless, but I'm opening up all of this. Now, that may take years for some. God may... God is able to do it in a moment, in other cases. But let's be people who trust him, that his kingdom would come. Finally, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. And of course, we don't want to be led into temptation. But this is kind of talking of God leading us away from testing in times of, uh, yes, into sin, but particularly into, into tests and trials that we go through. It's again recognizing that we're weak and vulnerable. We need God's help. So to say this prayer, the disciples' prayer, because it's all about discipleship, is a call to intimacy, a call to holiness, a call to God's will being done, a call to ask for provision, for forgiveness, and a call to be led away from sin. You can pray these exact words, and we're going to in just a moment. Or you can pray around the principles, but it's a great principle. Uh, At the back, can you help me out? Can you see the words on the screen? Okay, wonderful. What I'd like us to do, is if you're, if you're willing to, because I've just explained a little bit about this prayer, if you're willing to pray the disciples' prayer, then I think it would be great to do that now. A couple more things to say, but let's, let's pray this together out loud. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. As we've just looked at it, that is an incredibly powerful prayer. Your life could be changed by praying that prayer regularly and letting God soak in the full meaning. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't give them a formula and say, this is the set formula. He, he realizes that there's some principles at stake here as well. And he goes on and, and tells a couple of stories immediately after. And these are the next verses, Luke 5 to 8. He's, Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I've no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are in, are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he'll not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. That's a really weird story. 
we've done the bit, we've prayed the prayer. It kind of resonates with some of our childhoods because we've prayed that prayer before. And then Jesus tells this story about loaves of bread and disturbing people at midnight. And it's a culture that's so different to ours. We, We struggle to connect. We struggle to connect with the thought that friends would be coming at midnight and that we would have run out of bread, perhaps, or that we're expected to give them bread. Why would you want bread at midnight? For a sandwich. Thank you, Paul. That's obviously the missing bit of information I needed. What would you have in? No, we won't go there. So we struggle with this kind of thought. People are just rocking up at midnight. It's actually a hot culture, so people are maybe avoiding the heat of the day to travel, and they're arriving late, and this person's unexpected at this time of night. Bread's baked every day, and so the households run out of bread. What we, what's so far from our mind, not only is the lack of availability of shops 24-7, but, but more than that, the, the, the sense of responsibility on a whole community to care and provide for visitors. So actually, when someone comes to your home in a village, it's the responsibility of the whole village to offer care. So what this person is doing, the, the person who's had a friend come to see them, they're in a bit of a sticky situation. And, and Jesus is painting quite a laughable picture, really. It's quite a funny one, but it's really uncomfortable. Because hospitality is such a high principle in this culture at this time. It's really esteemed. And, and different cultures around the world do hospitality differently. But, but in this culture at the time, it's really high. And so there's an expectation when you turn up that you're provided for that the host is ready for you. If they're not ready, they'll find something. And, and actually, when you read the Old Testament uh, with that lens, you can see different times when, when Abraham has a visitation from God and he's, he's rushing around to try and provide something. You can see it again and again and again, this culture of hospitality. So on the one hand, you have the expectation of provision for the guest. On the other hand, you've got the social pressure that, generally speaking, it's not a good thing to go and wake your neighbors up at midnight. So we've got, I need to provide a loaf of bread. And actually, I better not go and disturb my neighbors at midnight, particularly when most houses were one room, where most families would sleep on the floor together on a mat, and where there's probably a a, a metal bolt across the door, and you've got to slide that open to to get in, and you're going to wake the whole family up. And so there's kids in this household, and the kids have gone, and some some crier needs to come back in and get comforted. and, And as a parent, when you've got young kids, and someone's threatening to wake them up in the middle of the night, you'd be forgiven for murdering them, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, no, scrub that from the recording. You probably wouldn't. But, but you're not keen on people waking up your children in the middle of the night. It doesn't go down well. And Jesus is saying there's this situation where this, this poor person has a visitor coming and they need to provide bread and they've got a neighbor there who's asleep with the kids asleep too. And, and they don't tiptoe over and say, excuse me, could you, could you possibly? Let me have, lend me, actually, he's going to pay them back, but let me have some loaves of bread to, to, to provide. Would you, would you, no, you're asleep, fine, I'll go away. Sorry, sorry for disturbing. That's what we'd do. Or, or, or I wouldn't actually go in the first place, I'd be too embarrassed. I'd be scratching around to try and make something quickly. But Jesus is describing the situation and confidence in prayer where we go to God without this kind of, oh, sorry for disturbing you. I know it's an awkward time and you're probably busy doing something else. Lord, you've got the whole world to run. And my needs really are quite small and what should you be caring for me? This person is described as going and waking the person up 
and saying, because of, not because of friendship, but because of their audacity, they'll disturb the master of the house and he'll give them the bread just to shut them up and send them away. And Jesus is not saying God's like that. But he's saying if even someone who's asleep with their kids will listen and will respond, how much more will your heavenly Father respond when you come to him? How much more? How much more will God say, I'm pleased to see you. You're not disturbing me. I wasn't asleep. The kids are fine. Jesus is welcoming us and he's encouraging us to go to the Father and at any time with confidence. Actually, the word is shameless audacity. He, he goes on and he, he says, it talks a little about the confidence there, but he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives and seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. These are perhaps familiar words. They're all present imperative. They're commands that are given. They're, they're present so they carry on going. It's not just a one-off. You don't just go, hello, Lord, it's me. Thank you very much. I better not disturb you again. We're asking constantly in prayer. We're seeking for the kingdom of God. This is what it means. We're able to go to God and ask. We're able to seek and search and look for the kingdom of God. And if we knock, the door to the kingdom is open to us. Because we go confidently to the king. There are many things that can stop us coming confidently to God. I don't believe any of them are from God. So if you're struggling to come confidently before God, when you come to pray, I don't think it's God making you feel that way. I don't think it's God putting obstacles in your path from you coming confidently before him because Jesus tells us to come with shameless audacity. Finally, Jesus then goes on. We've had one weird story. It now gets weirder. He says this, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, we've got to disconnect with this story, partly because most of us who are dads don't often get asked for fish or eggs. Playstations, money, all sorts of other stuff, but I can't remember the number of times we've had conversations which have involved fish or eggs. Um, generally, if there's eggs, they're in the fridge. Fish. Anyway. Um, so there's a bit of a disconnect here with this story. <clears throat> but it's really important because it shows us how we look upon God and it connects massively with prayer. You see, I've heard people joke about God and, and how we pray and, and say things like, um, don't tell God that you, you don't like going to a certain place or you don't like a certain food because he's bound to send you there. As if God is some kind of malevolent being who just loves to play little tricks on us and send us places we don't want to go. As if he's just waiting for the opportunity to go, <laughs> and I don't think he is. And I think this story, again, whacks that on the head, that thought. I don't think God gives duff gifts to us. All of us at Christmas time or birthday times would have had these moments, maybe not in our own families, but maybe with people we know, who there's been gifts given that don't last the day. When I was younger, I had gifts given that I, I needed batteries for. And I'm that old that shops weren't open on Christmas Day necessarily where we lived. So you had to wait. 
And you've got a gift, and there's the anticipation of waiting for putting the batteries in the gift. Oh, I'm so old, aren't I? Um, then the next day you might go out, Boxing Day, there might be something open somewhere, or maybe the next day you go and get batteries and you put them in the gift. There, there are gifts given that don't make the day. It would, the intention was good, but they just don't last. God doesn't give duff gifts. God, God gives good, good gifts to us. He gives richly. He gives us things that reflect his goodness to us. I was given a gift this morning. I said I wouldn't do this. Someone said, I bet you can't get this in your sermon. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that because I hadn't even thought I was, I'd forgotten I was preaching on gifts. But I want to show you a very special gift I've been given. It comes in a very special box and it's all the way from Singapore. There we go. It is a bottle opener with a magnet with merlions mer in them. In You're not quite sure what to make of this, are you? And that was my response too. Um, it's okay. The person who gave it to me had, had a friend taking a photo of me opening it at the time. So I think it was meant as a joke. Um, so that's a special gift that I've been given that you can all see now. Um, so there we go. So God gives great gifts, good gifts. I'm, this is a bottle opener. It, it may be used. Um, but anyway, um, so I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusion of, of my gift that I've been given. But God gives gifts that are wonderful and good. God answers, and this is the key for prayer, really. God answers prayer because he's good, not because we are. And some of the obstacles that prevent us coming to God at times are because we think we're not good enough, but it's never about our goodness. God gives good gifts because of his goodness, not because of us. There's no question in this story of the goodness or otherwise of the children. It's all about the goodness of the Father. The Father is the one who bestows good gifts. The Father's the one who gives and gives again. There's a snake and a scorpion in this passage. In just the chapter before, Jesus tells the disciples that they'll go. Um, he sends them out. Just trying to find the verse. Uh, I can't see it right now. It's the chapter just before. He, t he sends the disciples out and tells them they, they'll sort of trample. Oh, here we go. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Verse 19 of chapter 10. I've given you power to trample on snakes and scorpions. It's interesting that it's the same phrasing that's used in chapter 11, the next chapter. And I think there's a connection with, with this sense of evil gifts being given, that if you trust God for something good and ask him for something good, he's never, ever going to give you something evil. He's never going to give you something harmful. He's never going to give you something defective. He's never going to give you something that's going to do you damage. And maybe there's an insight into that, into why some of my requests to God so far have come back with the answer, no. Because I just wonder if sometimes I've gone, and this isn't the answer for why other prayers come back with an answer, no. But sometimes I go to God and I ask him for things and I can see just a tiny part. And I can imagine the kids going to the father and saying, Dad, can I have a scorpion? Because that's really cool. And the dad going, no. Have an egg. <laughs> and the kid going, I didn't want an egg. I wanted a scorpion because scorpions are cool. But the father knows better and the father gives good gifts. And the father is giving for what's best for the child and in in this case, it's not dependent on the child's goodness. It's all dependent on 
the fathers. God is trustworthy. He's got our best interests at heart. And Jesus specifically links, um, I'll end it here, Jesus specifically links the goodness of God, the courage and, uh, and boldness with which we come to him, the confidence with which we come to him, the prayer that he tells us to pray about the Father and the kingdom coming. He links it right at the end to the Holy Spirit. Yet again, we've got evidence of the, of the Trinity in the gospel. We've got God the Father who's the subject of the prayer, Jesus who's teaching us, and the Holy Spirit who's promised at the end. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you need the baptism in the Holy Spirit, ask. If you need God's empowering, ask. If you need the Holy Spirit at work in your life, God's presence, God's abiding presence, if you feel alone, you wonder where God is, you wonder if he's left you and you want to know that God is with you at all times and he's changing you from the inside out, you can ask for the Holy Spirit. And we know that God will give to those who ask. So, I want to end really with a prayer or a, a thought. That's this. May our prayer, because six out of seven of us pray, may our prayer be revolutionized as we put away timidity. May our prayer be revolutionized as we put away self-seeking and as we seek after God's kingdom to come in all its fullness. May sin be gone. May evil be gone. May injustice be gone. May we know the provision to live and serve God. May we live receiving God's forgiveness and offering it to others. And may we be led on the right paths. In all the situations that are out of our control, let us say, Lord, let your kingdom come. And in all the situations that are in our control, let us say, Lord, hallowed be your name. Father, I pray over each of our lives that prayer would become something so revolutionary that we would come to you with such boldness, that we would approach you with confidence, that we would ask and know we will receive good gifts from you because you're a good father. We love you, Lord. Thank you for inviting us into your kingdom. Thank you for delighting in us. Thank you for encouraging us to come audaciously and boldly to ask that your kingdom would come. We pray it would in Jesus' name. Amen.